Welcome to Season 5 of the Excel Still More Podcast. I'm still your host, Chris Emerson, and I'm here to encourage you in your walk with the Lord, and I'm glad you've joined. The program continues to be sponsored by Cunningham Financial Group. John is a good friend, and he's helped me and my family in everything from stock and mutual fund investing to annuities, life insurance, and retirement planning. I certainly commend him to you. If you have needs in any of those areas, you can reach him at 615-895-7773. Thank you again for your ongoing encouragement and support. Let's get started. Welcome and thanks for listening in today. I need to begin this episode with a disclaimer. I'm going to be sharing with you a short article from Christianity Today magazine called The Tyranny of forgiveness. The concept of tyranny is cruel and oppressive rule trying to control someone for your own self-interest. Particularly, we will dive into the weaponizing aspect of how some people wield their knowledge on forgiveness, and this will put us in deeper waters than usual as we talk about particularly oppressive relationships like verbal abuse, psychological abuse, physical abuse, and even situations that involve molestation. And look, my wife and two little kids listen pretty much every Monday morning, and I'm hopeful to word this in a way where they may have a few questions, but it will be fine for them. So I'm not intentionally trying to eliminate younger people from listening, but I thought you should know that up front. Before we get into that article, which I will read for you today and discuss its content, let's begin with some basic things that you and I both know about forgiveness. The New Testament is very clear that we exist in hope because God has forgiven us. You know very well that there are no limits to the extent that God will go to show mercy to you. You have given God every reason to be bitter against you, and yet when you come to him penitently, he forgives you and restores you. It has always been God's call to Christians not only to accept this wonderful kindness of God, but to be willing to extend it to others, to all others. The Bible talks about letting go of bitterness and wrath. The Bible talks about forgiving as God has forgiven us. The disciples wondered what the limits were on that. How many times can someone come to me and say they're sorry and I just accept it? And Jesus' answer of 490 times was a figurative number for limitless grace. Jesus even challenges us in the way that we pray to do so in this way. Lord God, be merciful to me as I have been merciful to others. Now, that statement from the Lord's Prayer has always struck me deep. I don't know that I've ever really been able to say that. Lord God, please measure the amount of forgiveness I've been willing to extend and forgive me right up to that level. Thank God that he always goes beyond our limitations, but Jesus is asking us to consider the correlation between the two. Maybe you remember the story Jesus told about the guy who was forgiven like $7 billion worth of debt. He pleaded for mercy and the Lord extended it to him. And then he goes out and starts choking some guy who owes him like three months wages. In the ending of that story, the man who did not understand what he had received did not extend it and he was recaptured by the guard until he paid back every cent that he originally owed, which of course would mean everlasting punishment. So I don't want to act like forgiveness isn't hard, but in its simplest form, it is easy to understand. No matter what someone has done to you, if they come to you and they are sorry 
for what they have done, you must forgive them. We understand there may be consequences, as we will talk about today. There may be legal consequences. Forgiveness has not always meant a clean slate on cost. But so far as it depends on you, you must already have a heart that desires to forgive them. You must take no pleasure in holding something over their head or thriving over the bitterness that you feel for what they've done to you. In that case, you will not be able to forgive them even if they ask earnestly. And like in our series on grace to faith to life, you must receive what is great from God. It must humble you and transform you so that you can extend measures of God's greatness into your relationships. So those are a few of the basic things that we know and that I have preached and taught many times. Usually in those Bible classes, there is a question that comes up right at the end. And I love it when it's right at the end because I can say, oh, I'd love to talk about that, but we're out of time. But someone will always ask, are we required to forgive someone who does not seek forgiveness? I don't want to use the whole episode on this, but I will tell you that you have to have a heart that desires mercy even before that person seeks it. We get two crystal clear Bible stories on that. One is Jesus dying on a cross at the hands of sinful men, and among the last things he says to his father is forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. He felt compassion for their ignorance, and it is not to say that God forgive them without them repenting, but so far as Jesus was concerned, it is what he wanted. Stephen carried this same thing into his Christian life a short time later, and even while he was being stoned to death, he used his last voice asking that their sin not be held against them. If this person is sinning and they have not turned from that sin, you still have to keep that issue on the table, but that is for their necessity and benefit, not yours. I will say this, if there is someone who you believe has done something against you and time has passed, but you're not convinced that it is ongoing sin or you do not believe that they are still in that sin, but they just haven't jumped through the right hoops with you, just forgive them and move on. But if they have sinned in a way so that that sin is still, so far as you believe, held against their account, or if they're living in sin and you do not believe God is blessing them, to simply forgive them and act as if that sin does not exist would not be a benefit to their soul. But just make sure your reasonings are right. You want them to experience the same mercy that you experience from God. Okay, I feel like we squeezed all of that in and it needs more time. I may come back next week, take you to the book of Philemon and kind of elaborate on how forgiveness works. But for the rest of today's episode, I need to push this further. Another question might be, what if someone seeks my forgiveness? Maybe they've been caught and they have no recourse but to ask forgiveness. But they do not mean it, or they do not mean it for my good, or they are utilizing it as a weapon to protect and cover for themselves. In other words, they used sinful force over you by sinning against you in this life. And while they are asking for forgiveness, they are still tyrannical in their approach, trying to control you and oppress you and weaponizing forgiveness to make you do it a certain way that ultimately rewards them. As I mentioned in the intro, this is what we see in cases where abuse exists. Verbal abuse or maybe a husband is unfaithful and the wife can't prove it and it's more of an emotional torture. Maybe there's actual physical abuse or even sexual assault, far too often found within the family, sometimes even with children. The Bible is clear. The predator must repent. And the victim must have a forgiving heart. 
but what does that mean and how does that work? And does that mean that the victim should behave exactly as the predator needs them to to resolve the situation? Or does that mean all consequences must be put aside since, after all, we don't want God to hold us to consequences after we repent? Maybe there are situations where it can work out that cleanly and simply, even after terrible sins from one person to the other. But it requires an honest and humble heart by everyone involved, especially the sinner. It's always interesting how providence works. I have had this heavy on my heart for months because of people that I know in certain situations, all of whom, sadly, have church affiliation. And victims reach out and wonder, what are my rights and what would God have me do? I've been praying over that and working through it, and then I just happen to open up the most recent issue of Christianity Today and flip through the pages, and I come upon this short two-page article, The Tyranny of Forgiveness. I read it more than once, and it kept deepening in value each time I went through it, So I'm going to read it for you today, but I'll also put a link in the show notes. We will break it down into the introduction and then four points that are made, but listen to this opening. Forgiveness is the heartbeat of salvation history and the virtue that should mark the follower of Jesus. But those who seek to control and manipulate others can twist even the very heart of the gospel for their perverted ends. A friend of mine experienced this. She endured a hellish childhood and abuse by several family members, including her father. No one in her life intervened or spoke up. As an adult, she finally gathered the courage to confront her abusers, who misused scripture and twisted theology to excuse their actions and demand her silence. Citing Ephesians 4.32 and Colossians 3.13, my friend's abusers pressed her to forgive, quote, as God forgives, God forgives us by taking on our punishment, they argued, so she should likewise forgive and forget and forgo reporting their crimes to the police. After initially forgiving her offenders, my friend distanced herself from her family. When she did so, they interpreted her actions as unforgiveness and bitterness, adding to her moral conflict. She is not alone. Again and again, across denominations, we hear stories about how, quote, Forgiveness has been used to vindicate abusers and silence the abused. Once their coerced forgiveness is offered, it seems impossible to retract, which is often why abusers use forgiveness as a silencing technique. How then can we de-weaponize forgiveness? I see at least four ways for the church to help dismantle faux forgiveness that's wielded as a weapon by offenders while preserving the central place authentic forgiveness has in the Christian faith. Okay, I'm going to share with you those four things that the author believes can help, but I just want you to go back through this cadence of words in one of these paragraphs. It talks about how forgiveness is used to vindicate the abuser and silence the one who's been abused. It is a coerced or forced forgiveness that is often pushed upon them by the offender as a technique used to keep them quiet. So as you hear that, let me just ask you, what's wrong with that approach? You caught me or you remember something, you come to me, I will say I'm sorry, you will forgive me, which means you will say nothing and we just go on with our lives. Well, let me jump in on the four solutions offered in the article and I think it will flesh out some of the problems with that. First, churches can help survivors strengthen their sense of agency and self-worth. 
Since the 1980s, researchers have shown how child sexual abuse severely damages survivors' self-esteem and sense of independence. Without substantial recovery of one's sense of agency and self-worth, which often requires years, if not decades, of loving support, counseling, and inner work, the act of forgiveness will often be involuntary and a continuation of the abuse. Only when significant healing has taken place and a sense of self-worth and independence from the offender has been regained can forgiveness become what God intended. There's a little more to that section, but here's the basic point. The person who's been abused or mistreated or belittled needs the opportunity to regain their sense of independence and self-worth in Christ. That demands that they are able to get help independent of their abuser. They are able to share with their church leaders, with counselors, and with friends. They can be honest about what has happened to them and how it has affected them and the process of rebuilding can commence. By its very design, they must be able to share what has happened. And to the extent that an abuser of any kind, whatever it might be, is unwilling to let them share so that they can get the spiritual help that they need, their asking for forgiveness is not a true act of faith, as it's designed to cover and benefit themselves and not restore the dignity and value for the one from whom they've taken it. Second, we must understand that forgiveness does not mean a lack of accountability or punishment for the evildoer. The act of justice actually demonstrates the biblical love of neighbor. At the start of Paul's discourse on love and his letter to the Romans, Paul famously urges his readers to overcome evil with good, to not avenge themselves, and to leave room for the wrath of God. For Paul, to love one's enemy involves letting go of personal revenge. Yet, importantly, it does not mean letting go of accountability for another's actions. In Romans 13.4, Paul describes the government as God's servant to execute wrath on the evildoer. Child abuse is a sin and a crime, and as a crime, it is a societal problem. Crimes require the government, the embodiment of the people and the servant of God, to call the offender to account. In other words, leaving room for God's wrath and asking the government as God's servant to execute wrath are fully compatible with one another. In fact, reporting sexual abuse is an act of love. For survivors, reporting the crime underscores that they have worth in God's eyes and that the abuse is unjust. It redresses the power imbalance in the dynamics of the abuse. A just sentence defeats what Daniel Philpot calls the standing victory of the wrongdoer's injustice. In condemning an abuser's actions, society vindicates survivors as being wronged by their offenders. Reporting a crime can also be an act of love for the broader community because it prevents the abuser from harming others, and it can be an act of love toward the abuser as it holds him or her accountable and invites repentance. I don't need to add a lot of commentary there, except to say that the laws of the land around us are agents of God to protect the innocent. Reporting lawless activity against another person will protect that person, it will protect other people, and as was suggested at the end of that paragraph, bringing those things to light and consequence can give the offender a chance to truly be humble and fully repent for the right reasons. I would pray, hopefully, willing to accept whatever consequences are needful to reform their behavior, protect others, and help their victims heal. 
Third, we can disarm a misuse of forgiveness by properly understanding reconciliation. An emphasis on reconciliation is often used by an offender to sear the victim's conscience and silence them. The proper response to such injustice is not reconciliation, but repentance. True reconciliation, when it is possible, requires fully acknowledging the evil of the abuse and the harm it causes, displaying active repentance of the evil done, and offering restitution to the victim. These actions do not impede reconciliation, they are prerequisites for it. If offenders refuse to be confronted with their abuse, it suggests they have not fully come to terms with their victim's dignity, the evil they have done, and the pain they have caused. It is similar in our relationship with God. We all flourish as human beings only when we acknowledge the evil we have done towards God, actively repent of it, and offer restitution by surrendering our lives to the Lord. The author then happens to cite my favorite proverb, chapter 28, verse 13. He who conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. He goes on to write, Only through repentance do we experience God's forgiveness and prepare ourselves for the day when our sins, past, present, and future, will not hinder in any way our relationship with the Lord. Those who try to force their victims to forgive not only re-abuse their victims, but also manipulate Scripture, violate Christian practice, and avoid their real good, accountability, repentance, and restitution. There's a lot of powerful stuff in that section, but mainly I want you to understand that reconciliation in the eyes of the offender usually means saying I'm sorry, forgetting it happened, and moving on. The sinner would do well to, number one, understand that God expects more of them, and number two, understand that reconciliation involves positive change and healing in the one that they have hurt. The article concludes in this way, Finally, a true repentant offender recognizes that forgiveness is an undeserved gift that must be offered freely by the injured party. The one who has committed a sin cannot demand forgiveness from God or from a single fellow image bearer. Otherwise, it would still be coercion. And God does not coerce the vulnerable. Instead, he promises to defend them, heal them, and invite them into the fullness of his kingdom. The church must bear witness to that good news so that forgiveness will not be used to cover up sin and silence the abused. Look, I hope you will give that article another read. I've attached it for you. I'm not saying you should agree with all of it. I know practically nothing about the author. But at the very least, here are a couple of things to consider. If you are someone who has committed a sin against another person that has hurt them in a deep and dangerous way, repentance is not just saying you're sorry for your own benefit. Repentance is your desire for them to restore their self-worth. It understands that accountability and consequences are a part of it that you must embrace and that their forgiveness requires honesty on your part and true repentance and changed behavior and such forgiveness can never be demanded or coerced. It must be freely offered by someone who believes that you are sorry for what you have done, and the action you are presently taking is about their benefit and God's glory, not yourself. On the other side of it, if you are someone who has been a victim of abuse, you need to find someone you trust to share that with. Maybe the offender has asked forgiveness, but it was coerced or demanded or weaponized or for their benefit and not yours. You have value, and the pathway 
to reinstating that self-value in the eyes of God and getting the help you need is a path that God would have you take. You may carry guilt about the consequences that come upon the person who has hurt you. That says something about your heart. And while you should never take personal vengeance, accountability for that person's sins is a part of God's plan to change them and protect others. Remember, just because someone says it's over and all has been reconciled does not mean it is the case. Sadly, there can even be oppression and tyranny by the one who's asking forgiveness. If you still feel broken or controlled, reconciliation has not yet happened. And lastly, as we said in the beginning, please remember this undeserved gift of God's forgiveness that he flourishes upon you every day. Keep a heart that is always willing to extend that to anyone. But just remember, forgiveness is a gift that you choose to give. It cannot be taken from you against your will. I'll say again as we close, I know this has been a heavy topic, and my prayer is that it helps just one person. If you think this content can help just one person, please consider passing it along in one form or the other. May God bring all sinners to repentance. May God fill every heart with gratitude and the willingness to extend mercy. But may no one, no victim, no tender soul ever be made to silently live out their life under the tyranny of forgiveness. Thank you so much for listening in today. If you enjoyed this program, will you share it with someone you care about? One thing I've learned over these five seasons is that there's nothing as powerful in advertising as word of mouth sharing between friends. Speaking of friends, let me once again commend you to give John Cunningham a call. He and his team have a wide variety of tools to help you use your present budget and life to build towards a more secure and hopeful financial future. Once again, you can reach him at 615-895-7773. And always remember, whatever you choose to do today in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, excel still more.